Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. A child, a stirring in the nation of Israel. That's my domain. That's my kingdom. I've heard rumors, rumors of some ancient foretelling. They speak of a new king, a new ruler, a son of God. Do they not know who I am? Do they not know the power I possess? Do they not know who my father was? I am the son of God. My father, Julius, ascending to God's right hand, have not the stars said it so. All of Rome knows that it is I who will save all creation, that I will be the peacemaker, a child, born of nothing, the son of a false god, of a powerless god. No, he will not be the true king. My kingdom will reign a power of victory, a kingdom of power, a kingdom of victory, a kingdom of prosperity, a kingdom of authority. All will worship me. All will fear me. All will know and proclaim my name, their savior, the savior of the world. If, uh, if that doesn't get you excited for church, I don't know what will. It's, a, it's like our only bag of tricks is an arrogant speech. Great job, Jordan. Um, <laughs> Uh, if this is your first time here, you have stumbled into a brand new church kind of in the heart of Cincinnati. Uh, we are City Church OTR, uh, brand new, uh, fully launching in the spring, but kind of in this preview service mode. And uh, it's been such a crazy, we were kind of recapping it last week, but such a crazy adventure to start uh, a new church in the middle of a city is an adventure in itself. To do it in the middle of a pandemic has been so fun. And uh, and by fun, I mean really difficult, but also very rewarding at the same time. So uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the two co-pastors here, so kind of a unique thing we have going. And, uh, and one of the things, well, you should know a few things about me. One is uh, on earth, my deepest love is Catherine, but my longest love is Diet Coke. And uh, it's been kind of a love affair I've had since like, I was a really small kid. And, uh, and not the bottle, not the can, it's got to be Fountain. And the best fountain diet coke can be found at McDonald's. McDonald's. Everyone knows that they have the best, uh, and I've heard they have the best coke, Dr. Pepper. But I love diet coke. That's one thing. I am in love with Tesla, like the car. I also am in love with my Tesla stock that I'm banking on one day paying for said Tesla. So I love diet coke. I love Tesla. Also, I uh, currently I would describe myself as like a dreamer. And, uh, and it's a discipline that Catherine, my accountant wife, has to like engage in every now and then where she just has to sit with me and dream. And it's like there's nothing, there's no goal. It's like where could we go next? What could we do? What could we start? But I was, I was thinking about it this week, and I have, I've always loved Diet Coke. Uh, since it was invented, I've always loved Tesla. I have not always been a dreamer. I uh, grow, I mean, that's like in the last 10 years. It's actually crazy to think like, that's at all a word that would describe me because uh, as a kid growing up, when I first realized this small white frame wasn't going to make it to the NBA, I, uh, I then set my sights a little bit lower and I decided I wanted to be a manager. 
And I mean, true story. When I grew up, I wanted to just be a manager. I wanted to play it as safe. I was like the most practical, cost conscious, shrewd at good times, like annoying at bad times kid possible. Like I grew up and I wanted to just be a manager because I wanted zero risk in my life. And I like, I didn't want to start anything. Like starting something was crazy. Uh, I'd heard that like restaurants have the highest fail rate. I definitely didn't want to start that. They're right up there with churches, ironically, so I have changed. Uh, but I like I wanted to be right there in the middle, not too high, not too low. I wanted to be in the safest place possible. I was like a crazy pragmatic kid that like counted the risk of everything. And, uh, and to illustrate this even further, I and I want to be sensitive, so I'm about to tell a story about Santa. Um, so for the millions streaming online, if you don't want the story about Santa to be heard by people around you, maybe remove them. But the time I first found out about Santa, I, uh, and I forget, something must have happened at school. I don't remember. I'm an oldest child, so I had to find out everything on my own. But um, I remember going to my parents, it's my parents' old house. Um, I was in their room, and I asked my mom. I was like, I, and I must have said something to the effect of, I heard something at school like, is Santa real? And, uh, and I don't know why I didn't have a red flag at this, but she's like, uh, I don't know. You'll have to ask your dad. And it's like, oh, she's confused too. She doesn't know. We'll both find out together. And so I remember asking my dad, and he broke the news to me that, uh, that Santa wasn't real. And I, I honestly was so devastated. I, w- I mean, it was like one of the first memories of disappointment I have. And it wasn't because I lost a hero or anything. It was because I had had this great strategy throughout the last like five years of my life. Um, somehow Santa knew that my parents gave us three gifts because Jesus got three gifts. And Santa also ad- adhered to my parents' rules. So he also somehow knew that we were only supposed to get three gifts. So I would lay out the six things I wanted every Christmas like leading up to that moment. And I would ask for the three cheapest things from my parents. And we were middle class. We weren't about to like go hungry. Um, but I wanted to save my parents' money because that's the kind of kid I was. And I would ask for things, and I'm remembering a couple things I asked for that I didn't even want, but they were expensive because it's a free ride. Like you're playing with house money when you get stuff from Santa. And I just thought, this is the, the and I later learned the term in business school, this is leverage. I'm going to leverage this guy that has unlimited resources, ask for really expensive things. And I left my dad, my parents' room so devastated. And I remember because it's like, I, had a, I was ahead of the curve on other kids. I had such a good strategy, and it totally backfired. And uh, true story. It's another reason why 2020 has just been really difficult for me. So thank you. Um, so I'm a dreamer. I haven't always been that way. Here's the crazy thing. As I think about how rational of a kid I was, like I was always questioning things. I was always calculating things. I never once thought, huh, I wonder if flying deer are like real I wonder if one guy, you know, maybe it's just a time zone thing, but one guy can actually go to every house in the world on one night. I was just learning about calories, like the sheer caloric intake of one cookie from every house just seemed crazy, but not once as a kid, and I think I've given you a window into the kind of kid that I was, not once did I ever ask the question, like, I wonder if that's even possible. And I think the reason is because I heard that story over and over again. I heard it from people at school, I heard it from my parents, I heard it in movies, and and maybe what I'll assert to you this morning is the more often you hear a story, no matter how crazy, how unbelievable, how miraculous it is, it just becomes normal. It just becomes true. Like the craziest 
calculating, shrewd, annoying kid never once seemed to ask the question, I wonder if like, that's actually possible because I had just heard the story so many times and we hear so many Christmas stories all the time. But I want to assert this morning, and you've heard it so many times and you're going to hear it one more time this morning, the craziest Christmas story that's ever been told happened 2,000 years ago in a small town in Israel. And we've read Luke 2 so many times and it's just become normal, it's become maybe unmiraculous at best, but the craziest Christmas story that's ever been told still happened 2,000 years ago in a small town in Israel and we've lost, I think, some of the allure because yeah, we just hear it all the time and we hear great Christmas stories and great Christmas movies in this season and, uh, and some of them are really great. Christmas does bring out, at times, the best of Americans. Uh, of generosity and heroism, but the greatest Christmas story, even though we've heard it, happened 2,000 years ago. So we're going to one more time, uh, and if you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, not sure what you believe, you've probably heard Luke 2, but we're going to read Luke 2 this morning just very quickly, and I want you to pretend like you've never heard the story before. I want you to pretend like you've not, you don't know how it ends, you didn't know that this was coming, you didn't know that this baby was going to be born. So we're going to read Luke 2, and we're going to look at it through the lens of two different competing Gospels that seem to be being announced. So in Luke 2, 1 through 7, it says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And that was the first census that Quirinius gave as governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own hometown to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, it came time for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And so we've been going through the Christmas series um, the last three weeks uh, on kind of the unlikely characters of Christmas. So we started... With Jesus' mother, Tyler talked about Mary and that moment where she kind of finds out, oh, this is going to be a big deal. I'm pregnant, and the prerequisites to pregnancy didn't really happen. And, uh, and then we learned last week, which was so good, about Simeon and the waiting for the, the consolation of Israel or the waiting for the Messiah. And, uh, and he's pretty obscure. Like, he's buried in Luke. Uh, we don't talk about him a lot. And I'd say equally as obscure as Simeon is, we're going to talk this morning about Caesar Augustus, um, who Jordan, I think, really well portrayed this arrogant, maybe mildly aware of what was going on in Israel, but certainly did not care. And if he did know, he was probably annoyed at something that was going on in his kingdom because he's actually a big player in the Christmas story, although we don't talk a ton. And so it's that first verse, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that should be taken. And so he's, first of all, the guy that is responsible for why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and like divine intervention. But it was Caesar that issued this decree, this census, and it's the reason that we sing the Christmas, we don't have the Christmas song, O Little Town of Nazareth. So he's a big deal, he's kind of influenced our world from the beginning to now. And Caesar Augustus, just give me five minutes, a little bit about him, uh, he was born Gaius Octavius Thurinus. And so naturally, the first chance he got, he changed his name. Uh, but he was born Gaius Octavius, and he was then adopted. He was a young man, when he was a young man, he was adopted by his great uncle, who was Julius Caesar. Okay, so 
History's coming back. And so Julius Caesar, we've heard about him, that great Shakespeare play, also actually true history, but he was stabbed in the back. He was kind of betrayed as the emperor of Rome. A2, Brute, very good, yeah. That's right, this co-pastor quoted theater to you. I know you assumed it would be the other one. This week in staff meeting, Tyler said, I am batting cleanup. He's dropping sports references. They say, they say in marriage, this has nothing to do, so if you want to tune this out. They say in marriage that you start to look like uh, and act like your spouse. I haven't read anything about what co-pastoring, but if I'm dropping theater quotes and Tyler's using sports analogies, next thing you know, you're going to be 5'7". <laughs> so Gaius Octavius, he is uh, the son of Julius Caesar, the adopted son. And after Julius Caesar is stabbed... Uh, there's this squabble for power, okay? True history, you've probably read about it in like eighth grade, but it's between the right-hand man, Mark Antony, and his adopted son, Gaius Octavius. And there's this long squabble for who's going to end up leading Rome, and one of the big moments in the midst of this was Gaius Octavius actually threw a giant party uh, to commemorate his dad, and he invited over, and I'm sure this was intentional, but he invited over a ton of really influential Roman citizens And uh, they're remembering his dad, and as they're remembering his dad, wouldn't you know it, there's a shooting star that goes across the sky. This is like real, a shooting star goes across the sky, and of course, that means that Julius Caesar has been ascended to sit among the gods. That's what everybody at this party took that to mean, which was really convenient for Gaius, because if your dad is God, what does that make you? Makes you the son of God. And so Gaius Octavius, very quickly after this, becomes the new emperor of Rome, because of course he would. He's the son of God. And he does what any person named Gaius would do, and he changes his name to Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus was believed to be the son of God. And as he started to lead, again, more history, he ushers in something called the Pax Romana, which is called the Peace of Rome. And so he's the son of God. And he was regarded as the man in that time that was to bring peace on earth. I think we're starting to see why Luke includes him in this story. So he's the son of God, brings peace on earth. There's an inscription on a building uh, that's commemorated to him. And it says, the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. So he's the son of God. He's supposed to bring peace on earth. And even his birth alone is supposed to bring good news. Not only that, but he chose a couple different titles that people could call him. One of them was Kyrios, the other one was Soter, which means Lord and Savior. So he's the Son of God, supposed to bring peace on earth. His birth brings good news. You're supposed to call him Lord and Savior. And we're starting to see, and this is probably news to some of us, this was not news to a first century Roman, a first century Jewish person. They knew the reputation of Caesar. They knew the things that were being said about him. And Augustus wasn't a bad leader per se for Rome. I mean, there were much worse Caesars that they had after this. But Augustus wasn't necessarily good for everyone. And so uh, Augustus, he issues this decree, this census, and it was supposed to be a way to collect tax. And that wasn't good news for everyone. But it was good news for the government. It also was a way to collect soldiers for the army. And so it wasn't necessarily good news for those that were called into the army, but it was very good news for that army. Augustus was called the people's emperor. He actually was the first one to give away some of his power, and he gave it away to the senators. So it wasn't good news for everyone necessarily, but Augustus was good news for those in the Senate. He had the strongest military rule at that time, which again wasn't good news for those that he was conquering. 
but it was good news for some. And he brought peace to the Roman world, which again, that was very good news to people that already had power. But it was not good news to those that he conquered through the sword. And so the story of Caesar Augustus, not, not a bad emperor in like the historic sense. He was good for so many, but he was not good for everyone. And so he's the son of God, bringing peace on earth. His birth is good news. He's called Lord and Savior. And I want to put a bookmark there, and I want to read the rest of Luke and compare what seems to be a narrative that Luke's kind of writing of, hey, here's what you've heard about the Son of God. There seems to be a competing gospel that he's presenting. And so verse 8, it says, And then there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. And we'll stop right there. Um, this idea of joy, I mean, they would have fully understood this. It's a deep, like, Old Testament theme. It's used over a hundred times um, in the Bible, actually synonymously with happiness. And one of the things we know is that what money cannot buy happiness, it can't buy joy, but it can buy a jet ski. Came by a jet ski. It's a famous like comedian thing. It's not biblical wisdom, but it is true. Nobody's ever frowning on a jet, jet ski. And, uh, and so this idea is woven all throughout the Bible. This idea of joy, this idea of happiness, um, it's defined as like this calm delight, this like silent assurance that you know what's going to happen. It's this emotion that wells up, and the Bible says that salvation causes joy, that God's word causes joy, the birth of a baby causes joy. In Isaiah, it says military victory causes joy. James takes it a step further and says suffering causes joy. But the overall biblical narrative of this word joy is that it's something worth pursuing. I mean, the Bible really encourages us. We should pursue, and I think this is where the founding fathers got it, we actually should pursue happiness. We should pursue joy, and it should be a basic right to any human being that joy is absolutely worth pursuing. And so we see in Luke 2, and again, a rich word, that this joy is announced, but who's it announced to? It's announced to the shepherds. And the shepherds were like the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. They were um, at that time like on par with tax collectors and prostitutes. So they were hated. They were overworked, um, underpaid, uh, there was this old story of uh, people were trying to decide because you had to tithe on everything that you had. And, uh, and so you had to, even had to tithe on the food that you had. So if you had 10 loaves of bread, you had to give one of them back to the temple. And somebody said, look, I have, uh, or I have food for my family, but I also have food for my dogs. How do I know if I'm supposed to tithe on that? And the leaders of the law go back and forth. And uh, true story, they said, they came back and they said, if you would feed it to a shepherd, then I think we'll consider it food. And so shepherds were somewhere in between like a real human and a dog. This was kind of the, their standing, and they were the ones that heard it first. And so now I want to like actually engage in Luke 2, and I want you to imagine, as hard as it's going to be, that you're a shepherd. In the first century, you're the lowest of the low. You're like hated. You're considered trash. You're barely considered more important than a dog. And I want you to imagine... As rough as your life has been, and as much of you as you've heard about this guy, Caesar Augustus, I want you to imagine the good news, this news, being shared to you. There's a birth that's going to bring good news. Yeah, we've, we've heard that one before. Uh, he's going to usher in peace. 
Well, so did Caesar. And it cost so many people their lives. No, 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 you don't get it. He's, his, his dad is actually God. Yes, seriously, I think we're talking about the same person. And you're going to call him Savior, and you're going to call him Lord. Yeah, we are forced to call Caesar those same things. And this Jesus, this new baby, he's going to bring joy. And I imagine they thought, yes, yeah, so was Caesar, and here I am. My life's not that good. I have no real hope in this season. I don't believe you. And if I'm imagining, and this is me imagining, this isn't necessarily scripture, but if I'm imagining, uh, aside from the fear that the shepherds are hearing as the angel announces this, I'm sure they're going through and saying, that's probably not for me. And the angel says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Yeah. That will cause great joy. And I think the thing that would have perked the shepherd's ears up was what came next. He said, I bring you great joy for all people. And that changed everything for them. See, they'd never heard a message that joy actually was available for all people. And that's where the comparison between the gospel, the life of Caesar Augustus, and the life and the gospel of Jesus. See, the gospel, according to Caesar Augustus, is good news for some for a short period of time. All people is where these two gospels diverge. All people. This idea was totally foreign that a leader could actually be good news for all people. See, if you were going to get good news for some, that meant bad news for others. And Caesar Augustus, the guy that was supposed to be the hope of the world at this time, Caesar came for the who's who, and Jesus just came for the whoever. That's good. You may keep going. Caesar came for the powerful. Jesus came for the poor. Caesar came for the wealthy. Jesus came for the worthless. Caesar came for the white collar. Jesus came for the redneck. Caesar came for the powerful. Jesus came for the powerless. Caesar came for the shameless. And Jesus came for those of us that have ever experienced shame. I'm not done actually. Jesus. Caesar came for the fashionable. Jesus came for the naked. Caesar came for royalty. And Jesus came to make you royalty. Caesar came and he brought peace on earth, but he brought it through the sword. Jesus came to bring peace through sacrifice. Caesar came for the benefit of his nations. Jesus came for the nations. Caesar came for slave owners. Jesus came to set the captives free. Caesar came to build himself up. Jesus came to pour himself out. Caesar came to glorify his life, and Jesus came to pour his life out. See, the gospel according to Caesar Augustus is actually the same thing we've been hearing. It's the gospel according to the rest of the world. And that gospel is good news. Fine print for some people for a finite amount of time. The crazy thing about Christmas, and again, we've heard the story over and over and over again, but it's that for all people. It's the actual ability that we have to pursue joy that Caesar presented one thing and Jesus has presented something totally different. And he has flipped the good news of the world on its head. And that's why we're still talking about this story. Like, we still sing songs about the birth of Jesus. We still talk about how wonderful his coming was. And Caesar is just a hotel. (laughs) And Augustus, he's a big deal. We named one-twelfth of our calendar after him. August is named completely after Caesar Augustus. That's amazing. But we've changed the way that we keep track of time based on the birth of Jesus. The good news of Caesar is good news at times for some. But the good news of Jesus actually is that we have access to joy. 
that for the people that call him Lord and Savior, we have full access to the fullness of joy. Jesus' birth has made joy available for the whole world. That's crazy. Jesus' birth has made joy available for the whole world. And this season is, uh, it's, it's a season that we experience every year, but it's founded on an unlikely event with a humble hero. And it happens so that the whoever's among us actually can experience joy. We don't have to be anyone to experience the thing that Jesus has offered us. And I promise you, no matter who you are, what you've done, or even currently what you believe, there is nobody less likely for an encounter with God. And there's nobody less likely to experience joy than the shepherds would have been 2,000 years ago. There is nobody, I mean, there is no social status that we have that is comparable to the shepherds, yet somehow they were the ones that got the news first. And that is, I think that's the Christmas story. The Christmas story is that it's the whoever's among us. Because honestly, the gospel according to Caesar Augustus, it excluded the shepherds, and it likely would have excluded many of us. But the gospel according to Jesus says that joy is totally available. Like we can engage with Jesus and experience the fullness of joy. Aren't you glad he came? Aren't you glad? You can say yes to that. Aren't you glad he came? Aren't you glad that we're actually the whoever's among us, the lowest of the low, the down and out, you wouldn't know, or you wouldn't say that if you knew what I did last night. I mean, those are the people among us that actually have access to joy. And it's a different gospel than the rest of the world preaches. And so uh, this morning, I want us to like actually respond to that. I don't want it to be an intellectual thing. I hope you learned something, but the motivation here is you actually have access to joy in this season. That there's a different story that's being told this year than the rest of the world can tell us. And there's a different access that we have to happiness and joy. And it is actually for all people. And, uh, and so let's stand and let's, let's go after joy. As just a bunch of whoevers, um, we actually have access to a supernatural thing through God.